Hey, I'm Jess O'Callaghan, and this is the Audiocraft podcast, recorded on the day by Podcast One Australia. The session you're about to hear is called Inner World. Four audiomakers who work in fiction and non-fiction explore the endless possibilities of world-building through sound. How can you use sound to evoke a fleshed-out sonic universe that your characters can inhabit and change in? And how can you turn organic sounds and landscape into characters themselves? Moderating this discussion is Beck Fari, an audiomaker who meditates on sleep, circadian rhythms and the subconscious through their audio project Sleep Talker. Sleep Talker originated as an independent podcast and is now a late-night experimental live broadcast on Triple R in Melbourne. They're speaking with New Zealand artist Joseph Michael, whose expedition to Antarctica was transformed into a podcast with Radio New Zealand in Voice of the Iceberg. Joining him is Becky Sui Chen, who produces audio experiences at museums and galleries and explores sound within her music project Sui Chen. And Chris Magilton, who's the creator, producer and sound designer of Among the Stars and Bones, a sci-fi audio fiction podcast about a team of xeno-archaeologists excavating alien artefacts on a far-off planet. I want to start by saying thanks to Lola for that welcome to country this morning. Um, And given that this session is all about engaging with place and environment. I also wanted to start by acknowledging that we are guests here on this land um, and the traditional owners of this land are the Bidjigal and Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and also want to extend the same respect to any First Nations people who might be here today. I just thought I'd start by kind of posing the question, what do we mean when we say sonic landscape? There's a lot of different approaches that we might take to sonic landscapes. Um, And today we're going to explore a few different definitions and a few different approaches. We'll be talking about real places like Antarctica. Um, We'll be talking about fictional worlds like planet Tethan talking about the worlds of visual art, the world of music. Um, And so we'll kind of be moving in and out of real spaces and virtual spaces, such as the internal realities of podcasts and augmented worlds. Now, I'm sure there's many, many podcast producers in the room and... Sometimes in podcasts we kind of leave environmental sound till the end. I know I've been guilty of this. Like I record all my vocals and then I'll think about the music that I want to use and then I'm like, oh, I should probably put some Atmos in here, hey. Um, But sonic pieces and sonic worlds can be so rich if we think about place and environment from the start. So we're going to be playing some clips from these three, from their work, um, and thinking about the approaches that they took. So this is a piece of music that you 
composed collaboratively with Casey Hartnett and Corin Iletto for the John Russell exhibition that was on at uh, Art Gallery of New South Wales yeah. last year. Yeah, that's right. It's um, it's kind of a bit of a fly under the radar project. It was an experimental project for Art Gallery New South Wales. They put a lot of trust in me, which is um, a real honour. I've been working with them through a company called Art Processes, um, who have largely worked with Mona down in Tasmania, and from there has been you know reaching out to other art museums um, to do kinds of different types of interpretive guides. Um, with my audio background, I've and I work part time. Just to be clear, I work part time for art processes and and part time for my music stuff. So um, that's how I kind of manage these two roles. And yeah, I've just been. I developed a really good relationship with um, the digital content manager and the head of digital at Art Gallery New South Wales and um, Francesca and Brooke, and basically kind of kept pushing that they should. Uh, you know, like experiment and think about using music in the space. There's already so much going on visually, um, and often, you know, hearing another ver- uh, hearing a voice telling you what to think can be kind of a little bit too much information. Um, they'd done a, yeah, they'd done a huge service design. They'd done a huge amount of work to kind of assess what was working and what wasn't working with audio in the gallery. So it was a really good point for me to come in, and and it was just a lovely like timing serendipitous kind of timing thing where I was able to be like um how about we try doing this and because of my uh position in art processes I could I knew exactly how our technology worked um and I knew exactly how it could be reappropriated in a creative context like usually we've not been so creative with um it's more technology focused solving the issue of delivering spatially context-aware content in a space using Bluetooth technology um, that's available on your handheld devices to, you know. And, and um, yeah, so basically we're able to think about musical responses to the artworks and using sound as a really complementary and not competing with the artworks. And uh, this first exhibition, the John Russell, this piece, um, super fun to write that. That wasn't also not the plan. I was like being quite like I'll get a, you know, the boundaries of my role as a producer in the digital world and how that overlaps with audio producer. It's quite distinct and working for another company, you have to be pretty clear about that. That's when it slips into creative and you're not employed to be a creative. It's, you know, there are copyright situations and if you're creating new work and who owns that. So, um, I set up the framework but then ended up hiring myself in that, that part-time self. And it worked, you know, like it's kind of a bit weird. But, um, yeah, <laughs> so I hired myself as a music producer. Basically, I, that's how it happened. It was, it's not a usual thing, I think, to happen, to be so close to the technology and then be able to inform it, um, yeah, with, and then be able to put music on it. And there's a really interesting interplay, I think, between the different kind of landscapes in that work in that you've got the sonic landscape of the music and then you've got the the landscape of the painting yeah. and you've got the landscape of the gallery. Mm. So there's kind of this interplay of different That's worlds. Tr- yeah. There's quite a few interesting things that I was learning through that. Um, like the serendipitous thing, the exhibition itself was an exhibition of en plein air uh, impressionist artworks by um, an Australian artist, John Russell. Um, so, yeah, en plein air m- means to, like, 
outside, painting outside. So there's an environment is in the natural environment is embodied in those in those artworks, which is really great starting point. It was all you know like good because we had the chronology of the person's life to kind of think about musically and respond to that, and we could work with the curators and um, because it was new, it was quite iterative. Like I did a lot of interviews with the curator that were. Not the usual way I'd do things if if there was a precedent, but because there was no precedent, we had to like trial and error, and um and yeah, uncover the story. There was another really helpful curatorial person involved who was probably a bit more of a podcasty fan, so they could steer the head curator um, Wayne Tannercliffe into like where the interesting points were. So that's how we got enough content to then respond musically, like from hearing the life, and we kind of overlaid the chronology of the person's life like we responded so this is when he fell in love and that gets like a bit romantic and then like the music this is like pastoral scenes okay let's reference like 60s 70s synth music that tried to reference pastoral scenes um in this room and you know that's uh, this one's ocean like Corinne plays beautiful piano so I don't know. <laughs> She's making it sound like the ocean. We also referenced like um, composers like Debussy. That like that. I mean, that was who is pretty obvious um, for that era. But like that was a starting point as well. Um, so that was the musical layer, and then the um, we added little sound effects. So if you walked into like the area where the seascapes was, your device would play. I should mention this is all being delivered off like an iPod device um, and you wear headphones and it knows your location so it automatically updates as you walk around so it's like a seamless kind of playlist and you walk into a, a corner where there's seascapes and like suddenly the ocean starts running and it overlays on top of the the music so these are all kind of pretty like you know as a audio like as a com- composer or engineer it's also kind of tricky things to make work you have to make sure there's enough space in the music so that the ocean coming in over the top doesn't sound like annoying. So yeah, ambient, ambient-ish music, you know, like not not um, super crowded music. You guys probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and um, well, we might go into yeah. a bit more detail about some of those sure. environmental sounds that you kind of laid in yeah. a little bit later in this session. But for now, um, gonna hear from Chris. I'm gonna play a clip now from uh, Among the Stars and Bones. So this is from the uh, opening titles to Among the Stars and Bones. So, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about how you went about creating an atmosphere for a space that doesn't exist? Sorry. Um, yes. Look, there was a, a few things I was trying to sort of hit with that theme. That was uh, composed by Oliver Morris, uh, who is uh, one of the creators of Kane of Fields uh, Paranormal Investigators, which is a great audio fiction podcast coming out of England for those um, who are looking for Rex. Um, but the conversation there was about really trying to evoke um, certain certain things. One of the things that that very early on I kind of had in mind was this idea of um, exploration and kind of comparing it to the way exploration occurred as 
uh, humans spread out to parts of the planet that we'd never seen before, um, Antarctica being, being one of them. And, of course, one of the, the ideas there is that when Antarctica was explored, when they were making the quest for the, the South Pole and so forth, uh, a lot of the time there they would be dropped off by a ship and then they would have to hunker down through the cold months. There was no one coming to save them. There was no way to get to them. And similarly, you know, that sense of isolation, uh, aloneness and so forth, and uh, with something of what I was trying to get into that theme, the, the, the space in it, um, the slow build of tension as well. I guess, you know, starting from that sort of idea uh, thematically of wanting that isolation, wanting that slow build of tension, you kind of take that and you say to your composer, this is what I want you to pour into, into the theme. Um, the, the suspense and so forth coming through, that's why the, uh, the stopwatch came in and, and all those sorts of things that sort of help to, you know, because your theme music is, is like your cover art. It's, it's part of how a podcast uh, stamps its mark, um, like the cover of a book. So the intent there was to try and get that sense of the world, uh, the building of tension and all of those sorts of things into those opening moments to kind of ground you in the story and the world you're about to explore. And I think that use of music in the opening titles is really interesting because in terms of the rest of your show, especially in the early episodes, the um, exposition of the narrative all happens through voice recordings from the characters and there's no interstitial music in moments in the story that in a different form of storytelling podcast you might expect music. So I'm going to play another clip from your show. This is also, this is from episode two and this is just a clip from the the start of the episode. Um, just so those of you who haven't heard Among the Stars and Bones, this is this is sort of how the the story plays out in terms of the recording, the type, type of recordings that are it's, used. Yeah, it's like the introduction to the, uh, to the actual episode. For attention of Jennifer Connolly, Eudoxus Initiative, Herodotus Task Force Status Report, Mission Planet Tethan Status Report 2, 5, Entries Included, Entry 1, Comptroller's Report. Commence Report, Adrian Barnes Reporting. Jan 13th, 22.11, day five of Herodotus' mission to Tethan. So we deliberately chose some clips only from the first two episodes of this show because we didn't want to give too much of the story away. I Suffi- appreciate that. <laughs> Suffice to say that that, that, that subtle si- sound design of the uh, audio logs, um, is that the correct term to be using, I'm, audio log? Okay. Yeah, so the, the, the audio log, that, the, the sound design of the tech of the audio log sort of begins to crumble um, and the world that the characters are in becomes a character in itself. Um, absolutely. Um, part of the reason for that, uh, having them framed through this thing, was that that then allows me to kind of mess with what is being recorded because uh, the idea that the sound exists um, as something uh, separate um, becomes an important part. The other reason for having those uh, introductions and gaps between reports is it's kind of a palate cleanser, cleanser sonically because we have five distinct people who have five different missions and five different agendas in five different places. Uh, and because of that, uh, I felt when switching between each one, in order to kind of uh, establish the contrast, you needed to kind of come out of it for a little bit before you could jump back into someone else's 
part of the world. Um, so that's a, a big part of why that's why that's there. Again, similarly, it's it's also um, that grounding thing of because things are recorded, um, you know, in world as it were, uh, of wanting to make sure that you understand that we kind of got the situation where we're, we're, we're dealing with something that has already happened and it cannot be changed. Um, the, the world sort of has no uh, way out, I suppose, is kind of part of the, the idea of framing it this way. Um, you mentioned the idea of uh, not using music throughout most of it. Um, that's quite common in, in a lot of uh, audio log, found footage type stuff, but it, it isn't necessarily the way it always goes. Uh, Khalil Stormfire would be one great example of a show that is based on the idea of recorded uh, things but still uses music much the same way that, that stories do uh, to take you in and out of moments. But having said that, because this world is entirely fictional and entirely made up, one of the things I'm always aware of when I am creating uh, soundscape and things behind is that it can still in its own way be a kind of score. That just like um, music in film and in other media takes us uh, either into a moment or joins us in the moment or kind of punctuates the end of a moment, um, you know, the, the way a, a love theme comes up during an emotional moment between two characters or, or what have you. Sometimes it can guide you, you know, from the start, from the middle, from the end. That's still uh, something that you can do sometimes with elements of other parts of your sound design. Um, I do that sometimes with some of the various sound effects, some of the parts of the soundscape that are more uh, intermittent rather than the stuff that's always present. Yes, yeah, so I do recommend listening to this one on headphones so you can hear some of those very subtle moments. Look, yeah, look, in some ways um, I try to mix for uh, a speaker experience because I assume that's kind of where most people are at. Um, but I, like a lot of things, the full effect is probably, you know, best in a, in a good listening environment or, or through headphones, yeah, I would agree. Well, we're going to move now from a fictional world to a real world, um, but it still feels like a universal way to me. Joe, this is the sound of Yoko. Can you introduce us to Yoko, please? Uh, yeah, so Yoko's one of the icebergs I, I guess, recorded the sounds of, uh, but also photographed when I was in Antarctica. Um, I guess a little bit of background on the podcast. It was um, based around an installation that I did uh, a couple of years ago and working on uh, other incarnations of this installation currently. When we went to Antarctica, I, I, I guess my background is heavily visual, as a, like a visual artist, but um, when I'm creating installations, the emotion that you put into these installations all comes from sound, so increasingly recognising the importance of a sound environment. So when we went to Antarctica, I took um, a, a whole team of um, filmmakers and, and audio engineers and recorders down there. So Mitch, one of the um, recordists, he had a variety of technology to capture um, I guess the sounds of Antarctica when we went down there, we, had, we didn't really have any idea what we would capture, but we knew that it would be important to have, um, you know, hydrophones and contact mics and um, quadraphonic microphones and all these things to capture whatever was available. When we got down there, we realised um, 
that each of the icebergs was as completely individual as the photographs that I was capturing of the iceberg. So every iceberg was completely different and the sound signature was, was unique. And so I might actually was, play a clip there um, from Ryan, Ryan McNeil, who was one of the sound recordists. Yeah, sure. Um, so this clip is taken from uh, Voice of the Iceberg, the podcast. Yeah, it sounds cavey. And I suppose that looks cavey. Even the noise of the water was great, eh? Deacons was the first time that I had my audio equipment on me and I had the headphones on. Of course, everyone, everyone can hear what they can hear, but I had this boom pole and the ability to hear amplified sound and signature of this iceberg. And in that very instance, I realised that these things, they have their own voice, which is something we, we never expected. We realised these birds sort of have a sound as variant as the snowflakes that create them. It's insane. Yeah, so I guess to expand on that a little bit, it was, um, uh, you heard Yoko at the start there, which is kind of this fizzling, fizzing um, sort of thing, which was these tiny little ice flake, ice, you know, flakes bubbling and, and, and popping. That iceberg was about five metres wide. And the sound of it fizzing, we could hear it from 20 metres away. It's like, you know, when you have the ice cubes in, in your glass of water, but think of that, but times the size of five metres bubbling away. Um, some of the other icebergs were... Um, uh, further out to sea, they would have the tension of the ocean and they would sound like shotguns or um, you know, big cracks and booms and, and that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, they're all different and, and amazing. So I want, I want to ask all of you, you know, what is it about sound that helps us access these spaces and, and, um, and kind of captures the imagination when we're, when we're you know thinking about place. I might start with you, Becky. Do you have any thoughts on, like, what is it about sound? <laughs> yeah, actually, I was just, when we were talking just then, I was just, I was just getting a bit lost in thought. This is unrelated. Um, kind of mainly, like, have, I have to have accessibility in my mind when I'm working on things, um, equity of access for the most amount of people and everything. And I was just thinking about how much you do glean from sound, like, of, of a storytelling and, and if, you, if you have... Um, if if you're someone with hearing difficulties or something, like how else are your senses heightened to to get that information? Um, that's just a random tangent that I was thinking. But anyway, so the point is that when you just have sound, I think you really focus in and you can really like, there's, there's a certain quieting of the other senses as well. Um, also half of like cinema storytelling or more, so I don't know what the percentage people would say is, but a lot of that is through sound, that like you could place a whole different soundtrack on a film and it would change the whole narrative. Which you did. Yes. <laughs> and we can play a clip from... Oh, um, I didn't mean that as a set, oh, but yeah. We can use it. Works as a segue. perfectly, Thank run you. with it. <laughs> Thanks for that segue. <laughs> um, I have a clip from the Sans Soleil uh, yeah, live sure. recording. Um, do you, Would you like to... It's from Torah, if you'd like to set it up in any way. Um, ha, do people know Chris Marker? Yeah. So um, Chris Marker's... 
one of my favorite artists, I'd say, and in, in, inspirations, um, like a film essayist. I was asked by Hear My Eyes, which is run by Hayden Green in, in Melbourne, to do live scores. It's, it's not an original idea. I think people have been doing live scores for films for, like, many years now. Um, well, you know, when films were silent. <laughs> anyway, someone actually came up to me after that performance from Russia and they were like, this reminds me of the punk. They were an older person and, you know, they were just like, this reminds me of the punk days in Russia and I used to have to go and see the score perform live. I'm like... That's awesome. But anyway, um, it's, yeah, so it's not a new idea, but it's just like a careful curation, I guess, and pairing of like the right film with the right artist to, to inter reinterpret that score. So um, Hayden obviously knew my work pretty well and, you know, asked the question. At first he asked me to do Blue Velvet, which was a David Lynch film, which I would have loved to do, but I felt a bit too overwhelmed by that task because I was like, I just don't think I have all the voices to tell that sound story. Um, in all, all the sounds that I'd want to have. So, um, yeah, asking me to do something which has a lot more voice, like um, Sans Soleil, it made a lot more sense to me. It's like 80% narration and a lot of sound design and then some musical moments. So, um, yeah, basically the track that they had was mono. And so usually they have like a, a, a track that they can separate. So if they're going to do this, they can um, they can give the artists a separate sound design, yeah, the stems, yeah. the stems, yeah, no stems. So basically when I set off to do this, I, I realised I was actually recreating the whole thing in production first before performing it. It was a huge task and it performed once, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have a clip from it for anyone who missed it. <laughs> he used to write me from Africa. He contrasted African time to European time and also to Asian time. He said that in the 19th century, mankind had come to terms with space and that the great question of the 20th was the coexistence of different concepts of time. By the way, did you know that there are emus in the Ile-de-France? He wrote me that in the Bejegos Islands, it's the young girls who choose their fiancés. He wrote me that in the suburbs of Tokyo, there is a temple consecrated to cats. I wish I could convey to you the simplicity, the lack of affectation, of this couple who had come to place an inscribed wooden slat in the cat cemetery so their cat Tora would be protected. No, she wasn't dead, only run away. But on the day of her death, no one would know how to pray for her, how to intercede with death so that he would call her by her right name. So they had to come there, both of them, under the rain, to perform the rite that would repair the web of time where it had been broken. He wrote me, I will have spent my life trying to understand the function of remembering, which is not the opposite of forgetting, but rather its lining. We do not remember, 
We rewrite memory much as history is rewritten. How can one remember thirst? So in this you were creating a new sonic universe for an existing sonic universe of the score for the film but also the visual universe of the 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 visuals of the film. Yeah, and the context of it being performed in a theater probably too. Um to people like with uh, like knowing that it's somewhat nostalgic to be in a theater these days and then also watching a film that's shot on old source, multiple sources of old different things. You know, like that's something to respond to in and of itself too. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think musically anyway, like I, I respond to things. That's that's the easy part for me. The narration was very hard. I, had, I hadn't done many readings of it and I, I kind of probably underestimated the amount of work. So I was trying to engineer it all myself and then I realised at some point I needed help. And I, I had to get another engineer because there's a lot of words that are pronounced pretty strangely. Um, not even possibly the correct pronunciation of the the original voice is so incredible. It's so weirdly mesmerizing, and and I didn't want to. I, I wanted to do just justice to that, but also be natural in my own voice. Um, luckily, I've been making an album that I'd already kind of started to hone a, a kind of stilted style of talking. So um, I had I had a starting point. Yeah, but it was a lot of work. It's a lot of work to to do that. You would probably want to spend a bit more time perfecting that, um, let alone the editing of mouth sounds and all that crap. You know, like just like getting the right landing. It's a performance, as you know. You know, like acting as well as it's it's a, it's a lot of work. So um, doing justice to something, I'm worried. It's such a thing that people love that film. So I just didn't want to upset people. So I thought it's best to just to do my own thing and, and like respond in how I see fit. So I had um, an, a small ensemble of people. You heard the flute at the end there as well. Um, we picked sounds, like kind of embellished some of the original synth sounds and picked moments where music would work. We didn't crowd it with song or music, but we did write new pieces of music for it. Yeah, but the first step was laying down that, that whole narration. So. And that style of uh, sort of narrating and using dialogue and layering it in with music and performance is something that is um, becoming more and more a part of your um, music performance mode as well. Totally. Um, so I'm curious about, you know, is that a way of kind of placing yourself as a performer in the sonic space of music? Yeah, I think as a musician it's a way to kind of break, break trends and break a mould and kind of create more of a narrative to your set as well. Um, you have such an opportunity, you're on a stage, you have a microphone, like you can do anything. Um, I think sometimes it feels like you watch bands and, you know, they perform their songs and they go through the motion. Yeah, for me to, to help me get into performance mode, because I do do other roles, I perform like I'm kind of, you know, I'm often switching context quite a lot from like project management kind of stuff or admin kind of stuff, engineering kind of stuff or um, organising other people and organising ideas so then to then get on a stage and play an instrument and be emotional is actually I need to switch and like loosen up. And so I guess storytelling and being a bit really more direct about it and just like there's nothing more direct than someone telling you a story. You can get a bit absent-minded I think when you engage in music, which is the lovely thing about music. But yeah, I want to try something different. And also I, I, I pre-record the spoken word in my set as well because... 
um, I care too much about the diction and the kind of phrasing to like leave that up to chance and then I can do other things with my voice around that. So that's kind of interesting too because it's, I mean, that might be a bit confusing for people too. Um, I think it makes sense to a room of podcasters. We yeah. Get it. yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> but like people are like, you're going to say that live, right? I'm like, no, why would I do that? Um, I mean like... <laughs> I can remember to say, but that's not interesting. That's it, it is interesting if that's all I was doing. But because I'm playing music as well, it's like probably a little too much to um, to get right unless I made that the real feature. But yeah, I love I love blending music with storytelling. It just it's just a different kind of pace, and also uh, I guess I really like Laurie Anderson. If people know Laurie Anderson's work, and you know all of these artists that have existed long before me who have done this kind of stuff for ages <laughs> I'm not doing anything new I think it's just like um referencing all the people I really admire yeah I think that's something to acknowledge as well is how hard it is to switch between that headspace of being a producer and an artist because they're two completely different mindsets and um yeah it's a luxury to have a producer <laughs> totally tell me what to do <laughs> yeah instead of telling yourself what to do um, Chris, I want to know a bit more about why sound was your chosen method for telling the story of Among the Stars and Bones. And I think one of the clips that uh, helps to illustrate this is the the echo from episode one. So I'm going to play another clip from Among the Stars and Bones. I'm sitting on the edge of the shaft as I talk to you. It's about 150 metres across. I can see the lights that the bots are setting up on the other side, twinkling, like a whole bunch of glowworms. No, better. A cavernous vertical sea of stars, and I'm just floating on it. I mean, seriously, check this out. Did you have like a picture in your brain of the scope or the scale of that space and then you placed your characters within that? Like how did you? Um, yeah, look, I mean one of the advantages I suppose I, I do have in terms of that visualisation is that there is a physical recorder in this theoretical space that is taking in these sounds. So it's obviously starting from the point of view of what relates to what, how far away is something from the thing. Um, but there was a real thing there about that, that idea of trying to get across scale. Um, in in that moment, you know, the the idea that this uh, one of the main areas in this particular site has a, a two mile uh, vertical shaft that descends deep under the ground, and that's what he's standing over the edge of when he's doing that singing, um, and trying to get that idea of scale of the vastness of it, 
also the scale of the, the project. There are 96 people on this mission. We hear from about a dozen of them over the course of the, of the show. So wanting to kind of have those moments that, that bring other people in because everybody in that space is pursuing their own story, has their own particular uh, agenda and thing that they're trying to achieve. And so trying to have moments where we brush up against each of the other people uh, in there was, were very important. But as to why telling the, the story of, of sound, um, when we do these kinds of stories, we've given you uh, description, uh, obviously narrative and plot and so forth. We're giving you character and we're giving you certain music, sound, whatever to kind of build a world out of. But my Planet Teffen, as the creator of this thing, is going to be different from your Planet Teffen and anybody else's. I've always liked, uh, it's another Joe Michael, uh, Joe Michael Straczynski, um, creator of uh, Babylon 5, always talked about the 12-foot cockroach rule. Um, it's that idea of when you hear something scratching at the door and you don't know what it is, it can be literally anything. But the moment you open that door and on the other side is a 12-foot cockroach, that's pretty weird, that's pretty full-on, that's a lot to deal with. But there's still a part of you in that moment that goes, well, at least it's not a 15-foot cockroach. So <laughs> it's that idea, I think, although certain things obviously are going to be revealed over the course of a story, you know, certain, certain uh, mysteries are going to be solved and certain things are going to come to light, you're never going to see the cockroach in this particular instance. And therefore, you're always, you know, the, the story is completed by your imagination. And I think that is what makes, for me, sound a much more interesting way to tell this kind of story. Plus, I don't have $100 million to actually, you know, create the CG of a, of a two-mile-deep uh, chasm, you know. <laughs> so there's that. So it strikes me that that, that sort of um, creating this, this sonic space within a podcast is, is taking a sonic world and placing the listener within it wherever they are. You're sort of meeting the listener in their space and taking the space to them um, and maybe trying to transport them through sound. And then on the other side, there's also sonic landscapes that, that kind of um, augment our physical reality. So they meet us in, in a um, physical space and take us there in a sonic way. Um, so Joseph, so Voice of the Iceberg was the podcast telling the story of uh, your expedition to Antarctica and then from those um, recordings and visuals there was an installation called Antarctica While You Were Sleeping. Um, I'm going to play a clip from... The some of the score to that installation was composed by Rian Sheehan. Can you tell us a bit about how you uh, thought about the listener or the audience's context, so the ways that they would be interacting with this work um, and how to sort of 
place them in maybe a vicarious experience of Antarctica? Yeah, well, there's two things. The first decision was, I guess, um, if we do a composition and then how to do that. Um, so there was a lot of discussion around, I guess, how, how that would sound. And um, you guys have touched on that a little bit of like this otherworldness feeling that Antarctic has. So we talked a lot about dream states. We talked a lot about um, space was another thing. It feels, it feels like you're on a film set. It feels like um, another planet down there. And so when I collaborated with Ryan, I was just, he has a huge fascination of space and, and does, um, his library of sound is just incredible. And um, so we just talked about how that might sound and I drew on the knowledge of, I guess, the feeling it had for me in, in Antarctica and trying to express that through a soundtrack as, as well as the, you know, sounds that we recorded down there. Um, one of the interesting things that happened through that process was the physicality of sound, I guess you would call it. And that happened by mistake. And I was in a huge warehouse and we were going through, you know, 30 or 40 different samples that Rand had done in terms of different soundtracks and sound. He'd do these little 20 second, 30 second snippets just to see if some of them were heading in the right direction. And all of a sudden I was standing there with the engineer and we had this huge wall of sound. And previously, like the last three or four or five, we'd almost been shouting to each other. All of a sudden we were just quietly talking and he hadn't ch changed the volume knob. And I was like, Jesus, what's going on there? And he said, oh, that's easy. That's just the frequency. It's not hitting the frequency that we're speaking at. And I was like, sorry, what is this? Like, Because well, it was quite new to me. And he just explained that voice, in terms of the frequency that we speak at, has a frequency, but sound is much wider than that. So if you think of like a, a bubble, that's the, the frequencies that we're speaking at, but sound encompasses a much wider um, balloon or, or bubble outside of that. So a lot of the score, we sort of investigated that and we pushed aside some of those um, frequencies that you talk at. So then people could walk around this huge muse museum, huge building, which is obviously an iceberg with ice crashing off, and it created a really dreamy experience for people to walk around and they could whisper, but they could still have a large volume of sound. And then when we wanted to interject that, we'd have the crashing iceberg or would cross over those frequencies so people can talk to each other. And that was really impactful. And then you com combine that with bass, which is very physical, and then you get a quite a visceral sound experience. I'm not sure how much we'll be able to experience this in this room. I don't think there's a subwoofer here, but um, I'm going to play one of the iceberg, um, sort of the mixed iceberg recordings. So I can't feel the floor rumbling, but um, <laughs> the that idea of the, sort of the the very um, physical frequencies of the the bass in the rumble and the kind of um, low sounds of the icebergs. Hopefully, you're getting a sense of that. Um, yeah, it's just fun, especially I guess that's outside the podcasting a little bit, but to explore how you experience sound in the real world, how you experience, you know, when you're listening to a podcast and, and watching films, there's all, all different um, ways we can access different tools within the range that sound offers. Yeah, I could, I could just, I, I totally know what you mean about, like, mixing as per appropriate for, like, a, a space. Like, it's, 
it's such a specific thing that you're talking about mixing for speakers or for and I, I think um Chris's work is a lot more narrative like based so he's communicating possibly a lot more through sound where it seems like we're kind of doing these other site there's more site specificness in some of the stuff that we've been talking about so the mixing of the music in the gallery had to pay attention to people being able to still talk and wearing headphones but in a physical space and not feeling disoriented so we went with a lot of mid-range kind of frequencies and we wouldn't do things that would ring out and just you know trigger hearing aids and things like things like that that you have to have in mind um and then again the spaciousness of the music being ambient so people can actually interact with each other in a physical environment and yeah not not feel disoriented because they're taking in so much else yeah um, I'll just add, uh, you, you take the top, you take the middle. I actually end up, tend to end up on the bottom because um, usually to create that sense of distance because I don't want, you know, the, the sound is there to be, uh, to be enjoyed but I don't want obviously it to clash too much with the narration and the, and the narrative and the lines it's coming on so there's a tendency to push out some of the high frequencies, um, the higher spoken frequencies particularly to, to create that sense of distance from, from other layers that might be hundreds of metres away. And so, um, it, you know, it, it's 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 kind of there to come and go. You can um, you can kind of appreciate it if you want to, or you can just focus on the words if that's what you need to be doing. Because, of course, everyone processes sound differently. I'm curious how all of you feel about all of these sound design choices and how how true they need to be. You know, if you're um, taking somebody somewhere or representing a space to somebody, how accurate do you need to be when you're representing space? Um, Becky, you use some in a, uh, sorry, in the John, John Russell exhibition, you use some uh, Australian landscape recordings um, and these were layered in with the musical soundtrack elements um, and Joe, you're using, you know, recordings of icebergs and Chris, you're creating, you know, entirely new sonic spaces. And so it seems like through each of your perceptions as producers, you have a subjective or an emotional version of a sonic space and then you're taking somebody else there and, like, filtering it through their subjective uh, perception of that space. So, like, how... How do you interplay with this idea of like truth and accuracy in a sonic space? And in terms of what I do, um, I guess the only access I have is to my truth, like my experience, um, because if I try and interpret what someone else might be thinking, it usually ends up in a disaster. So um, I just go for what feels natural to me. And sometimes as well, like truth doesn't have to be um, that factual recording of it, it's your experience of it and relaying what the experience felt like can be truth too. So. Um, I think for me, I, I try not to overly clutter with, with too many sounds. Um, you know, I start sort of with the sounds that the person is is themselves making, whether that's uh, them pressing buttons or, or shuffling papers or, or whatever. You know, you need those things in there because they often reveal things about the story or the character and, and, and that sort of stuff. In terms of uh, additional layers... I try and kind of get a sense of um, something that gives a sense of the the environment. I then think about things like reverb to, to, to suit the physical uh, space and that the we're in. But the thing is, right now, just in this room, there are a hundred little sounds that we're actually picking up that we're mostly dismissing. 
because you know we we know how to navigate a space and we, our brain knows how to discriminate between what's sort of hitting the ear and what's important and what isn't. Well, you know, some people have uh, a difficulty with that, of course, but uh, most of us do. Whereas when you are being presenting someone a, a story through sound, they don't automatically have that ability to dismiss because you're serving up every choice you've made and everything you've included. Therefore, the more you include, the more difficult you make it for them to kind of make those choices and, and, and distinguish. So, you know, unless, and it obviously is occasionally true, the chaos is the point, I try not to overly layer past sort of thinking about uh, what is the, the, the person telling the story at the moment doing, what might one or two people around them be doing, and then what might be uh, just a little bit of what might be coming through from the environment itself. Oh, I, was just gonna say, I think that's really interesting hearing uh, the two experiences, but also like from Chris's like, the emphasis on narrative in that world, like and having experience as an actor. So Chris being super aware of the sounds that you make in a performance. And I was just thinking about yeah, how much did you embellish the the sounds like in what's that sorry? Of the icebergs? Yeah, or? like because um there's obviously like an environmental message there. But um I'm curious as to Um no all the all, like there was magic in the audio for sure. Like um I think um you just utilising the magic that's there and potentially finding those heightened moments. Yeah. So I think it's interesting because there's, like, different messages. So, like, the truth is more important possibly in this work and then this one is more conjuring, like, referencing. It didn't ha- doesn't have to be so truthful. Um, when I'm doing anything with environmental sounds, particularly in Australia, I'm super conscious of... Or any any anything, but um, trying to use real bird sounds and, like, real... It, it's... It's more about the time that we're living in and that there's, like, a lot of destruction to the environment. So, like, to use non-real bird sounds to conjure an Australian landscape is problematic to me. Um, And I recently worked on a project, actually. I'm I'm in the middle of working on a project at Mona where there's an AR experience that we're installing and there's, like, an AR... I'm not even sure I'm supposed to talk about this right now, actually. But anyway, it's opening next week by the time anyone hears this. Um... There's an AR bird, and it's a Tasmanian thornbill. And um, yeah, how, anyway, how do you make a bird that's critically endangered? There's like only two photographs of it, and we had to make it in 3D, and then add sound to it. There's no two photos. Anyway, there was an expedition happening, and we managed. They, they, they Mona contributed monies to this expedition. They managed to get the first ever t- um, King Island thornbill recording, so we could use the sound. But that was like super important to the message. So it's, it's pretty interesting in talking about truth in that context because I think it really matters sometimes and other times it's like narrative worlds or emotional stuff, music, 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 whatever. You know, like music can, you can use whatever you want, you know. Um, but yeah, there's a good spread of different kind of, yeah, uses of that here. Yeah, and it seems that, um, you know, sometimes a sonic landscape can can distract a listener or an audience from the um, acoustics of the environment that they're engaging with, but then in other ways it can can facilitate them to actually pay attention and, and engage with their, their acoustic reality as well. Um, I think it's time for audience questions. Um, if anyone has anything they'd like to ask these three, um, there's going to be a roving mic, so please do wait for the mic if you do have a question as we're recording this session. Hi, thanks very much. Um, 
Early on, Beck, you asked the question about um, or described sound as a character. And in the narrative world, the, the kind of indicator of character is that they undergo some sort of change. You know, they have a character arc. And I just wondered if any of you think about sound as character in that way, the sound undergoing a change, some sort of metamorphosis during the production. Um, look, there are a few few elements um, that I do think of uh, in that sort of, sort of way. I think um, one is that there is a distinction between uh, sound in in my world that uh, is, I guess, human generated um, by sort of you know our technology and our people and so forth, and anything that kind of uh, is. Uh, alien in nature, because obviously, as they as they you know delve deeper, they discover more and more uh, things, and some of those have ambient sound. And so that idea of um, that idea that uh, those sounds also uh, evolve as, without revealing too much, the place reacts to them to some degree, and so as a result, you get the situation in which there is sort of an evolution of, I guess, awareness. Uh, and that is reflected in aspects of the sound design as time goes by. And so in that way, I think um, sound has a character. I think also sound is very good for revealing character. Um, we met one character very briefly at the end of one of the, the clips. And in that one, um, she likes to sit in her office and surround herself with something that isn't so, you know, clinically, I'm technology, we, 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 all the technology in space and that sort of stuff. Her space is deliberately set up with, um, a lot more organic sort of uh, sounds that are more terrestrial in nature, a ticking clock, an analogue clock in a, in a very digital world is a deliberate choice by her to try and ground herself in some sort of reality rather than... Uh, and her chair is constantly creaking. You know, just those ideas of giving that little bit. This is a person who on a level doesn't want to be there and that's kind of what I'm trying to hint through those choices. So, yeah, sound also revealing character. Oh, that's really cool. Um <laughs> I really want to dive into both of your work. But um, I was just thinking, the way Joseph talked about before, like there was a name for the iceberg. It, it really... Oh, yeah, we characterise each of the icebergs. <laughs> um, yeah, Yoko, for example. Uh, it started because it was just boring to categorise them as one, two, three, four, five. And then we started to think, well, what could we call them? So we just went through the letters of the alphabet. And, How Yoko? Like, why Yoko? Uh, well, because it was Y and, and it, it's... Um, <laughs> I was assuming that it, it, it rammed into a bunch of other icebergs and broke them all up. No, it was... Oh, it's not good. It was just um, inspirational people was the kind of the theme and then... Also valid. Yeah, she's pretty cool. And, but what happened then was that when it added, it personified it and now people talk about Yoko, even though Yoko may or may not exist, probably doesn't, because icebergs constantly, constantly transitioning and melting and disappearing. And when I talk about Deacons or Magnus or um, Nelson or Valentine, I can see visually each of those icebergs. I know how they sound. I know the experience. I know the exact location. And it really helps um, you bring together that and, and um, create a narrative around and it personifies each of the bergs, which I guess makes them more endearing. I did a, I did a soundtrack for Drive. Like This is a really literal answer, I guess. Um, the film Drive with Ryan Gosling as well as part of the, another Hear My Eyes project, um, also with Casey and Corinne. And I, I, I think I was busy or something and I missed the first rehearsal and then all the writing session and I got to the next one and they had given me all the romance scenes that were when the, um, the main like love interest character appeared 
and that, that was just a decision. They're like, yeah, you do all those sounds, you know, with your Juno and your what. And I was like, okay. So, so it was really funny that that wasn't a conscious choice to divide the work up, but I ended up just having that character. So whenever they appeared on screen, I would like play something. There, that was a super clear way to distinguish, you know, character in a very literal way. Just change, change the instrument and the music. Thanks. Uh, thank you, all three of you, for your incredible sharing of your experience. It's really great to hear. Um, I've got a question a bit about composition and giving your listener the space to feel things. So one of the things that I think I'm often conscious of when I'm composing is am I writing the emotion into the music too literally and am I kind of forcing the listener into an emotional space um, but I want them to feel um, rather than letting the dialogue necessarily breathe and speak for itself and letting the listener kind of feel. Can you just speak to your kind of processes around thinking about that? Uh, yeah, I think the dialogue, the, or whatever the most... If there's dialogue, if it was a film thing, that comes first and, like, working backwards from that. Um, just trial and error, kind of, like, playing something, feeling it out, seeing if it feels crowded. Um, yeah, it's so subjective, but working collaboratively really helps with that too. So, like, I found the trio was really cool because we'd be like, oh, that sounds a little... Uh, and then someone's like, you think that sounds dark? I'm like, that's that's the norm. You know, like, so it's really good to have a bit of conversation, collaboration. And, yeah, I think space is really good too, just making sure there's enough sp space in between moments. And, well, yeah, I, I kind of what Chris was saying, just not crowding it, like starting really simple because often you don't need to do that much. Like it could just be a subtle like, little note or really soft. Um, and also the cockroach metaphor too, like, if you hear something and you don't have the visual to contextualise the size or whatever, you might really focus on it and it becomes larger than life in your mind. So just being really, like starting with subtlety and less is more, I would say. Um, if it's being spoken about, there's a chance that it doesn't need to be doubly depicted in the music. So, yeah, that's just my approach. Um, look, I guess, you know, I, I deliberately not having music is, is also, um, I guess, part of a choice too. Uh, the most recent episode of my show that came out had a particularly emotional uh, moment for uh, my character and I deliberately, it, it was him again still on his place out on the shaft but it was late at night thus no one else was there. So it was a deliberate choice to have absolutely no sound apart from the ambient reverb while he is pouring out some of the worst stuff that's ever happened to him um, to kind of just isolate him in this moment that he is having and really show, I guess, that aloneness, you know, that, that that can be a choice too. And another thing about our theme music is it evolves over time. Uh, there is a theme that is present for the first three episodes. That was the one that was, that was played. Uh, it starts to transform into a second theme for the middle episodes. And there was one at, that comes up at the end when things are not going well. Um, it's, its name is Pandemonium and, you know, there, there's a reason for that. And one of my questions to my composer when he was giving me this thing which had a couple of very kind of uplifty piano moments sort of within it um, was, you know, does that really feel appropriate? And he's like, well, yes, because also in your story we need that element of hope. You want to capture the what's going wrong and, you know, he was certainly doing that. But you need to have the contrasting emotion perhaps also present because 
moments often do have more than one feeling attached to them. So yeah, maybe that's that's part of the the answer too is the contrast. I don't I don't know. Yeah, the way I approached it in the installation was the icebergs were the character or the the literal sounds, and that was um, I guess reality. And then we used composition to take people to a, a heightened experience or um, you know otherworldly place. And so you're sort of dancing in between those different experiences, bringing them back to reality, then taking them off into some ethereal place. And also just heightening that emotion through the, the installation goes through, it's looping, so it's, it's seamless, but it goes for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes before it starts again. And the iceberg and it's basically tells the story of, an, of what happens to an iceberg. And then, yeah, you just sort of, I don't know, I think it sounds great at pushing that emotion, lifting, taking people, like sort of driving them to tears almost. It's, um, it's interesting to hear that and like note the, from artists, the difference of an artist's perspective working in communicating environmental messages versus um, I worked at Melbourne Museum like like years ago and there was an exhibition I wanted to add music to but the curate, curatorial perspective was that no, 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 that's going to heighten emotion. And I was like, that's the point. <laughs> this, and so that was really interesting because they wanted to have people audio telling their stories super dry and there's eight different characters and... How do we distinguish, you know, like, I was like, oh, okay. Anyway, things have moved a long way since then. So. <laughs> I think that's time for us. Thank you so much for sharing. Really appreciate it. That was Beck Fari in conversation with Becky Sui Chen, Chris Magilton and Joseph Michael. Thanks to Podcast One Australia for recording this session and sound engineer Andrew Renfrew. The AudioCraft podcast is produced and mixed by Ryan Pemberton and the music is produced by James Milsom. If you haven't already, subscribe to the AudioCraft podcast. New episodes from 2019's festival will appear in your feed every week and there's a whole back catalogue of audio advice for you to explore. If you liked this, you'll love the episode from 2018 on using music in podcasts with Jay Kranz and John Chia. It's called Fine Tune. Well, first of all, I sort of take it in as a whole where I want it to be a kind of sonic ecosystem where one grows the other. I don't want to feel they're separate. So while I pay attention and there are certainly times when the music is really striking and I'm very aware of it, the best times is when I'd, I try really hard to notice it and I don't. Uh, and it's the same in a movie. I'm like, I'm going to really listen to what they're doing with the music. I get to the end and I go, shit. We'd love to keep in touch. Sign up for our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au and find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at AudiocraftFest. <laughs>